All right. We just want to uh, welcome all those who are uh, joining us from the ET1 campus to take our membership class today. Uh, whether you're from Hillsong or ET1, you're taking the membership class today. I uh, just want to welcome you and just want to bless you in your step to take the class. And after the class is finished, complete, you'll be given an opportunity where you can covenant and commit uh, to this house and uh, walk under the covering of the leadership of this house. Um, you know, and I just want to say if uh, uh, there's a man of God or a woman of God who ever approaches you and says and claims, you know, I'm a spirit-filled person, uh, let me lay hands on you, impart something good, let me prophesy over you, tell you the secrets of your heart and, and show you what God's about to do in your life, I will be reluctant to receive prayer from them so quickly. You know, it's kind of like this. If you were, if you are a, an M, let's say you are a basketball player that wants to play in the NBA. And while you are practicing shooting jumpers out in the playground, somebody comes up to you that you don't even know, claims that they're a basketball expert, claims that they know everything there is to know about basketball and has read every book there is to know about basketball. And, to, and that person tells you, come hang out with me and I'll, I'll take you to the NBA. If the person you found out, that, if, you, if you found out that person doesn't have any connections to the NBA, has never played with any varsity team in high school or varsity team in college, doesn't know anybody that's in the basketball business, would you as a real prospect, let's say you're like a Kobe Bryant or a LeBron that's coming up, you have the talents, you have the giftings, would you go out and be mentored by that person? Would you even go out and get lunch with that person? You probably won't. If you're smart, you probably won't. Why? Because if a person claims to be an expert or a person claims to be knowledgeable, those claims should also be tested in the relationships that person has with the community of people that are in that area of expertise. Well, it's the same in the body of Christ. If there are man, a man of God or a woman of God comes up and tries to claim that they're all spirit-filled and they want to prophesy over you, you know, use your discernment. But if the person has no covering, the person is not in a community, the person is not committed to a body of believers, or the person is not in submission to any real spiritual authority, I would advise you to be reluctant, to hesitate in going with that person and receiving that person's impartation or prophecy or covering. It is very important. And I believe this is something that God is restoring in the church today for young people. He is restoring the truth that Christianity is not just about believing, it's about belonging. That when we come to Christ, we do not just come and belong to Christ, but the Bible makes it clear that we also belong to one another. And the Apostle Paul even argues in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14 when he talks about spiritual gifts and when he starts to confront the abuse, abusive use of the spiritual gifts in the church of Corinth, right there in the center where we get 1 Corinthians 13, which we use for most marriages and weddings, right there in the center of that teaching on spiritual gifts, he teaches about love. 
Now, the proper use of your natural gifts, the proper use of spiritual gifts, all of that doesn't line up. All of that doesn't make sense without the context of love, without the context of real relationships. Where you make yourself vulnerable and you let people in, you let people speak into your life as much as you want to speak into theirs. So for those who are taking membership class today, I just want to say that you're on the right track. Whether it's with this house or whether it's with another house that God leads you to. You know, the, um, the hard truth for some of you in here is you love New Philly. You love what's going on here in this house. But for some of the visitors here, you're not called to this house. That, that, that eats away at you. Because you, you, you either want to stay here or you want to serve here. Or you want to get connected here. But some of you don't have a call to this house. And that eats away at you. But I'm just saying, wherever God has called you, when you get there, make sure you're connected and submitted. You're committed into that community of believers. God's not looking for consumers. He's not looking for people that are going to just take a ticket and go and watch the movie. He's looking for people who want to star in the movie. Who wants to have a role in the movie that he's shooting right now. Hallelujah. Community, community is so, it's such a vital part of a healthy spiritual growth. If Christ is to be formed inside of you, that's called spiritual formation, spiritual growth. For Christ to be formed in you, you got to be connected to the body of Christ. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. All right, let's go to our message today. Second uh, Timothy verse three, and I'm going to read verse 16 and 17. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16 and 17. Title of today's message is all scripture is God breathed. All right, we're going to look at this. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16 and 17. Let's read that. Let's read that all together. I'm going to read in the ESV. So if you have the ESV, read loud and proud. Here we go. One, two, three, go. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Amen. The Word of God says here in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. That means God-breathed. Metaphorically, it means God-inspired. God-spoken. God is the source out of which the Word of God has been written and recorded. All Scripture is God-breathed. And there's a lot of people out there today, they like to scrutinize the Bible because it's the best-selling book in all of history and all of, all of time. And people like to try to scrutinize the Bible and even people who are within the church, they like to criticize and scrutinize the Bible. In fact, some of them have not really written and are not well-read 
Yet in their pride, they like to scrutinize the reliability, the authenticity of the Bible. And what I want to do here today is I want to lay it out clearly that all scripture is indeed God breathed. That in this house, as we move forward, one thing that we will not compromise in is a high view of scripture. We're not going to be like some other unnamed denominations or liberal arms of Christianity that like to pick and choose which part of the Bible is from God and which parts are not. That have a very low view, what's called a liberal view of scripture. Unfortunately, there are well-meaning Christian scholars at the turn of the 20th century that taught amazing things. But in the, in the midst of teaching those amazing things, they also taught a low view of scripture, a very liberal view of scripture. Personally, I have no care for those kind of scholars. Uh, I appreciate their contributions, but you know what? Uh, that's why I'm, I'm strongly reformed in my theology because one movement in Christianity that has never compromised a high view of Scripture is the Reformed movement. The Reformers, the Reformation, the, everything that started at the Reformation and continued on. They've never, they've never compromised in a high view of Scripture. If you, want, if you read the Westminster Confession... You will, what you will find there is a document that is just full of life, full of scripture. And uh, everything that they say and they, they express contains a very high view of scripture. All right. So today I'm going to talk about that. All scripture is God breathed. Now in the flesh of my natural mind, there are times and instances in my life where I questioned the authenticity of the scriptures. Why well, I question the reliability of the scriptures. And for every thinker out there, you have probably done this already. For example, there are how many gospels in the Bible? There are four gospels. How many of you guys have ever done a study of the harmony of these four gospels? All right. These gospels, sometimes they overlap in the same parables. They overlap in giving different accounts of the same situation. And some of the things that you may find may actually surprise you. Because they seem to be contradictory. They seem to conflict. Alright, and so when you begin to, in the shallow level, interpret what you are finding here, you might sometimes say, well, this proves that the Gospels are unreliable. There's all these different eyewitnesses, those eyewitnesses, you know, even in today's uh, courts, you know. I mean, can you believe, man, there are so many people on death row that are not guilty. Unfortunately, everybody on death row says, I'm not guilty. So it's kind of hard to find those who are truly not guilty. But one of the strongest things that will get you convicted and put on death row is the account of an eyewitness. And I love uh, listening to the 60 Minutes podcast. And everybody in here you should listen to the 60 Minutes podcast. It's, it's really good. It's really good high-class journalism. It's really good quality journalism. And it's free. And if you have an iPad, you can look up the, uh, download the 60 Minutes app. I think it's about five bucks. But you get all the videos for free. 
Actually, I think all the videos are free for, on the website. But I, I, I watched 60 Minutes segments where they've talked about people that are in prison for life or people that are on death row. They get exonerated a lot of times because of DNA evidence. But what got them convicted was the account of an eyewitness. And then the whole 60-minute segment shows that eyewitness accounts are actually not all that reliable. Um, and so, you know, you start to think the Gospels are not reliable because eyewitness accounts are not reliable. You know? Or you start to think, man, if I had to write about circumstances that I experienced 20 years ago, I would have a hard time remembering the exact words that people said. Now, imagine that right now. Some of y'all are already only 20 years old. Um, just go back 10 years then. For the older folks, try to go back 15, 20 years and try to take an accurate account of the conversations you had in seventh grade. There are only a few memories that I can probably do verbatim because they were very, very funny. I remember, uh, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but I remember it's, in seventh or eighth grade, it was like, I think it was eighth grade, I was sitting in the back, and at that time, I was lactose intolerant. I started getting lactose intolerant, but I didn't know I was lactose intolerant. And some of the things I love to eat is like pizza, some old English pizza down on Fifth Street, cheese steaks. I used to eat cheese steaks, lots of them. And so, when you're lactose intolerant and you eat lots of cheese, you get very gaseous. And the gas is not friendly. And so before I knew I was lactose intolerant, I was sitting in the back one time, and I just, I just let out a small burp. It was like silent, but I, I burped. And then one of my Cambodian friends all of a sudden goes, Ew! Yo, somebody just farted! <laughs> and then another one of my Cambodian friends, I remember verbatim said, That smells like rotten egg! <laughs> and I remember saying, Somebody farted. <laughs> now, honestly, I, I, I didn't know it was completely me. All right? I thought it was somebody else. Okay? But the, the, the evil of my actions that day was to point my finger at a Korean boy named Tom. Now, don't worry, man. He was like the scapegoat in our group. All right? So everybody used to do it anyway. So, you know, it ain't going to hurt. It'll hurt me, but it won't hurt him. So I just pointed at Tom and said, hey, white boy did it. Because we used to call him white boy. Now, when you're in a school with no Caucasians, being called white boy is an insult. So I was like, no, Tom, white boy did it. White boy did it. Everyone's like, ew, I hate you, Tom, man. You stink. Can't believe you farted in class. Ew. <laughs> I just remember Tom going, it wasn't me, man. I ain't do nothing. I ain't doing nothing. Ew, man. Somebody else did it. And they were like, shut up. You did it. <laughs> but anyway, most of the accounts that we try to recollect uh, is not to that degree of accuracy. Because we, we just simply don't remember what words went where, what sentences went before what. We don't even know all the sequence of events, really. Uh, and some of us are better, have better memories than others. And we're all selective in our own unique ways. Some of us are more selective goal-oriented. Some of us are more selective relationally-oriented. 
And so, you know, there's all these different questions that come up. Can the Bible be trusted? If it is the eyewitness accounts, some of the portions of Scripture are eyewitness accounts like the Gospels. Can that be trusted? The Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible, before they had printing presses, before it was written down, do you know how it was passed down? Traditionally, it was known to have been passed down orally. Now, have you ever read the first five books of the Bible? That is a lot of information to pass down already. Man, if I was a Hebrew at that time, I'd be like, man, forget it. I ain't doing it. <laughs> what do you want me to memorize? What? Can you imagine passing it down to your children and then your children forgetting some parts of it or mixing up some parts of it? It's like five long books. Even just doing Genesis alone is like long. You know, you got, you got Abraham, you got the creation, you got Noah. You got Jacob's life. You got Joseph in Egypt. And there's so many things there. And you start to think, maybe, maybe the Bible's not so reliable. All right, all right. Let's say scripture is God breathed, but maybe, maybe that's just really, really a stretch metaphorically. I don't know. I need to really be careful if I'm going to trust the Bible or not. And these are some of the conclusions that we can come to if we don't really think through what the Bible is claiming for itself and what we find within the Bible. Now, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. And I want to begin first with the Old Testament. Okay? The Bible is split up between the Old and New Testament. And if you ever put your finger where the split happens, what you will find is the Old Testament easily outweighs the New Testament. The reason why your Bible is so heavy is because of the Old Testament. Large majority of the Bible is the Old Testament. And what I want to prove to you right now is that the Old Testament, all of it, is God-breathed. Okay? So let me, let, me, let, me, let me show you. First of all, the Old Testament, often we will see the phrase, Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Which appears hundreds and hundreds of times. Now, back in those times in the ancient Near East, this phrase was identical to the phrase used within the monarchies of pagan kingdoms. It was very identical to the phrase, thus says King Nebuchadnezzar, thus says King Xerxes, whatever, thus says King dot, dot, dot. And this phrase was used to preface the edict of a king to his subjects. And when such an edict was made, it could not be challenged or questioned, but simply to be obeyed. And so when the prophets of God say, thus says the Lord, they are claiming to be messengers of the sovereign king. Namely, the Lord of all the universe. They are claiming to represent the king and his message when they say, thus says the Lord. So it's a weighty phrase that was used throughout the Old Testament. But even when this phrase does not appear, there are many instances in which God is set to speak through the prophets. So, for example, in 1 Kings chapter 14, 18, chapter 14, verse 18, it says, All Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the prophet. And so throughout the Old Testament, there are many instances in which it is said that God spoke through a person or a person spoke in God's name. And so wherever you find this in the Old Testament, it means that 
Wherever this is mentioned, it means that God is speaking. Because God is speaking through that person. Or that person is speaking in God's name. So these two examples, if you add them up, they constitute, they constitute, they make up the large portions of the Old Testament. I mean, most of the Old Testament it can be covered by these two types of instances. And then on top of this, what we need to understand is the first five books of the Bible for all of history, Hebrew history, all of the Jews, Jewish history, the first five books are indisputably the word of God. That has never been a question or doubt ever in all of Judeo-Christian history that the first five books are from the Lord. That they are divinely inspired. That Moses received it by divine inspiration when he he would talk to God face to face. And so when you understand this, that the first five books of the Bible have always been considered to be God's words. And then you take the rest of the Old Testament into consideration where it says, thus says the Lord and God spoke through this person and that person. You get a clear picture that indeed that all of the Old Testament is indeed God breathed. It is inspired by the uh, by the Lord. Now, if you go to the New Testament, you will begin to find evidence of such a view about the Old Testament in the New Testament as well. Uh, at the time of Christ and after the resurrection and ascension, the early believers, they had a culture of believing that all of the Old Testament writings, including the Psalms and the Proverbs, that all of the Old Testament writings were God-inspired, that God breathed. There was a culture of that. Everyone believed that. No one ever disputed that. Okay? Now, in the New Testament, a number of passages demonstrate this kind of thought. Uh, one is... Maybe let's get this right. 2 Timothy 3.16, what we just looked at. Okay? 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, you got to rewind back to that time and space. Let's say you're back at time of Paul when he wrote 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, at that time, did Paul have a copy of the ESV? No. Thank you. One person. <laughs> Understood. Or, um, no, there, there was no copy of a compiled Bible. So at that time, when Paul writes, all scripture is God breathed, what does he have in mind? How do we know that? Okay. Well, that's good logic. But not, not only that, this word scripture appears in the New Testament 51 times. And every one of those 51 times, it refers to the Old Testament. So when Paul writes, all scripture is God breathed, he's saying, all of the Old Testament is inspired by God. Well, what about all them oral traditions that were unreliable? Apostle Paul's like, no, all the Old Testament, all scripture is God breathe. This verse therefore supports what is self-evident throughout the Old Testament. That the Old Testament is indeed God breathed. God inspired. Although man, human authors wrote down the words. God is the one who inspired it. Now another New Testament verse that supports the divine nature of the Old Testament. Is 2 Peter verse one, uh, chapter 1 verse 21. Let's look at that. Second Peter chapter one, verse 21. 
If you come to worship with us here at New Philly, I just want to encourage everybody, please bring a copy of your own Bible. I love the iPhone. I love the iPad. But I don't want to see iPads and iPhones. All right. I want to see you bringing your own copy of the scriptures. I know that makes your purse a little bit heavy. I'm sorry. Make, make your husband carry the Bible. You carry your Bible. Or if you don't have a husband, go get one. I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad. Come down. Come on. Many of y'all will be married soon. All right. Hallelujah. All right. Um, Second Peter verse chapter one, verse 20 and 21. It says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is not denying the role of human volition or human personality here. Instead, he is making it clear. I mean, he makes it clear here that men spoke. So obviously, he's not just saying God spoke and man dictated it. He's saying men spoke. Right. So he he doesn't eliminate the role of man in the writing of Scripture. Instead, he is saying that the ultimate source of every prophecy of Scripture, the Old Testament, every prophecy of the Old Testament was from the Holy Spirit. So whether that's the book of Job, whether that's the Psalms, the minor prophets, the major prophets, Esther, the Apostle Peter is arguing That whenever man spoke and the scriptures were written down, the Old Testament scriptures are all inspired. The source of that inspiration is the Holy Spirit. Someone say amen. amen. Now, I have met very smart pastors on the Northeast. Can't speak for the rest of uh, the country. I don't know if there are any smart pastors in the rest of the country. I'm playing. I'm playing. I'm playing. Calm down. All right. Uh, I've met very smart pastors who reject the Genesis account of creation. In fact, there are some of you in here that reject the Genesis account of creation. Because if you're really smart, you may have read some articles out there that say that Genesis is actually a type of literature that is meant to be read like a legend. That it has a metal, metaphorical kind of nature to it. Um, so, you know, I've met these kinds of pastors, and they think that God would not deceive us by putting all of the scientific evidence all over the world that shows that the world, that the earth is actually millions of years old. So they, they think science is correct in, in the way that they test for carbon, carbon dating, and that carbon dating is completely reliable, and carbon dating tells us that the earth is millions and millions of years old. If the Genesis account is correct and we take it fairly literally, that means that the earth is only thousands of years old. And so they argue that, you know what, God will not deceive us by putting all this kinds of scientific evidence all of the earth that show that the earth is millions of years old. And so some also even adopt an altered view of evolution, saying that we came from apes. I'm just saying, there's a lot of smart pastors that believe this now they also deny that adam and eve were literal persons 
So they say that Adam and Eve are representatives of the human race. And they argue things like, how can black people come out of Adam and Eve if Adam and Eve were of one particular ethnicity? Or even if they were of two different ethnicities, where did all the Asians come from? When did our eyes decide to get tight? It's a good argument, right? So Adam and Eve weren't literal. They were figurative. They were there representing mankind. And they argue that the Genesis account leaves room for such a view. They think that Genesis is not specifically describing how God created the heavens, heavens and the earth and mankind, but rather just giving us a picture of how God did it over millions of years of explosions and evolution. Now, I'm, I'm telling you right now, very smart people believe this. Furthermore, they argue that since Genesis and all of the first, first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, as we talked about earlier, was traditionally handed down orally, that the reliability of the book of Genesis is very poor. It's very uh, inaccurate and very fallible. And so they argue that I cannot possibly throw out my brain and believe in a literal account of creation as written in Genesis. Now, I've heard the arguments. I've read the arguments. I've read actually the other side as well. I went on a tour of the Grand Canyon. If you ever go to the Grand Canyon and you get the, the creationist scientists come out, these Christian uh, missionary dudes that are really smart and scientifically smart, and they actually take the Grand Canyon and they argue that Noah's flood actually happened on the earth and that the Grand Canyon is the largest evidence that the flood actually happened. Because what you will find is at the top of the Grand Canyon, there are fish fossils. And they're wondering, well, how do fish, you know, what are they, they, like, walk up there? They cl- start rock climbing it? Like, how do they get up there? Right? And then how do they get fossilized? Because fish, when they die, they don't get fossilized. Fish, when they die, they, they flow up to the top of the water. And then other fish, nasty little cannibalistic fish, they start eating the dead fish. And then there's no fossil. The, the, the fish remains, you know, are lost. But fossilization happens when there's a sudden <laughs> covering of sediment. Over uh, fish and reptiles or whatnot. So another you know, guy showed me all these things about the Grand Canyon. It was very convincing. And, I, and I, I listened to both sides. And whenever I listened to the side where they say that the Genesis account of creation is representative. That it's simply a figurative thing. My spirit gets very uneasy. And so I remember in, in college thinking, man, that sounds really good, but... I'm sorry, but something's uneasy in my spirit. And I don't know why, but I do know I'm uneasy. (laughs) What helped was later on, as I studied the scriptures, uh, one of the, like, there was like a voila moment where it just hit me. The, 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 the evidence that I found that completely shattered that argument for me, at least for me, is the indisputable evidence of how Jesus, the incarnate God-man, read the Old Testament. 
Do you want to know whether the Old Testament is reliable? Read and think about how Jesus read the Old Testament. And now you get a good picture of whether the Old Testament is truly the words of God or not. So here, um, Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 and 5. The religious leaders of that day, they questioned Jesus about divorce. And here's how Jesus answers them. Verse 4 and 5. All you thinkers, pay attention. All you non-thinkers, pay attention too. Try to start thinking, please. Verse 4 and 5. When Jesus questioned about divorce, Jesus said this. Have you not read... It means he's referring to something that's written. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Hallelujah. Right there, first of all, it should shatter any kind of redefining of the marriage institution. As far as God is concerned, institution of marriage was not created by man in order to improve his societal conditions. The institution of marriage was created by God himself. And when God instituted marriage, he said marriage is to be between a man and his wife. And it doesn't even argue for uh, polygamy. I was trying to look for a polygamistic or something like make up a new word. Doesn't even argue for that. Doesn't say a man shall leave his mother and father and be united to his wives. I just don't think that's the wisdom of God. Because one woman is, you know, handful right there already. She's united to one wife. Um Now, what just happened here in this, in this text, what just happened here, what, if you study the footnotes, it says Jesus just quoted Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Because this phrase, therefore a man shall leave his mother and fa- father and mother and be united to his wife and become one flesh, that's from Genesis chapter 2. Everybody knew that it came from Genesis chapter 2. Jesus didn't even have to say it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 says. He didn't do all that because everybody knew Genesis at that time. The Jews, it was a Jewish culture he was talking to. Jesus quotes it. Now, if uh, anyone had any doubts about the reliability of Genesis and the oral manner in which it was handed down, the words of the Son of God himself should just take care of all your doubts right now. Because Jesus could have taken this opportunity to say, well, I would like to talk about divorce, but because of the unreliability of the oral tradition in which Genesis was handed down, I can't quite quote it verbatim because it's inaccurate. They messed up my wording through thousands of generations that have passed it down. No, Jesus doesn't say any of that. He doesn't take any opportunity to try to redefine how the Jews thought about Genesis and the first five books of the Bible. Rather, he quotes from it verbatim. Jesus doesn't give us any hint that the Old Testament is unreliable. Another place where it's clear how Jesus read the Old Testament is in the wilderness when he was tempted by the devil. 
devil comes up to him, says, if you are the son of God. Then turn these stones to bread. And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. <laughs> Jesus didn't get into a long speculative argument with the, with the devil. What did Jesus do? If you look at your footnote, that phrase, man shall not live by bread alone, it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. It is in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Is it Numbers and Deuteronomy? I'm sorry, I always jack that up. Numbers and Deuteronomy. Hallelujah. I just, he just covered the first book and the fifth book. So everything in between, Jesus is trying to say, it's reliable. Anyway, he quotes it verbatim. Satan comes up to him again and says, Worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world for they've been delivered on to me. And Jesus says, you, sh- you know, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy 6.13. Satan says, if you are the son of God, you want to play that scripture game? Well, I know scripture too. Throw yourself down from this temple for it's written in Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you so that you not strike your foot against a stone. Come on. Now, you got to understand the devil uses scripture too. We all need to understand that. Uh, devil is constantly twisting the scriptures to try to manipulate, control, dominate your life. That's why we need the spirit of God. We need the spirit of God. But, you know, where we are in our own immaturity and in our own process of growth, we also sometimes need to submit to spiritual authorities that have been walking and that have been appointed with a certain clarity you need to submit to their interpretation sometimes because they're there to help you where satan is easily twisting the scriptures for you he was not able to do that for your spiritual authorities because they have oversight for your soul and so jesus responds and says you shall not put the lord your god to the test once again deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 16 now either jesus really liked deuteronomy Or when he read the Old Testament, he read it as scripture. He believed that all of scripture is God breathed. You got to understand that a lot of the things that Jesus went through at the crucifixion, they were prophesied, not in the minor prophets or the major prophets, some of them were. A lot of the prophecies also came from the Psalms, which up until that point, a lot of people believed had authority But they didn't know just how much authority it had. They thought it was David singing about his woes and singing about his afflictions. But it was actually the Holy Spirit of God hiding prophecies about the Christ within song lyrics. Let me tell you something about hiding stuff. You know, I I saw that video that John Michael posted on his Facebook wall about they sold their soul for rock and roll. It's a... uh, it's, it's not a high-quality documentary, so <clears throat> I can't commend it to everybody, and I can't, they don't even really quite quote their sources, so I don't even know. But some of the things they say is definitely true. You know, I, I, I've done studies. I used to be really into, like, classic rock, 
And I noticed that before I got into classic rock, my cousins were into classic rock. <clears throat> and I noticed that the more they got into classic rock, the more they got into weed. And I was like, what the? Why are you guys smoking all that weed? I realized it's because it's all in classic rock. You, re- you listen to all that music and the devil hides his messages and his values within the music. Man, you know what really upset me? When one of the Beatles, he wrote a song where it says, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. And then toward the last chorus, it goes to Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. And so back then in the 60s, you know, he was trying to attack the main movement, which is Christianity at that time in America. And he tried to slip in these new age beliefs through music. And uh, it's really disturbing about what happened at Columbine, but... Uh, the a documentary was arguing that a lot of the uh, the drive behind uh, these two guys going out and massacring their classmates, a lot of their drive was from the music they listened to. In fact, the way they set up the killing, they threw a bomb into the library, and then these guys, they set up behind desks ready to shoot people. I mean, what kind of, like, where did they get the inspiration for that? And then documentaries arguing that it's in uh, some of the songs they, they, they were listening to. I think it was like DPMD and then some weird German group called Reinstein or something. <laughs> I was like, what, what kind of trippy Colorado kids were these listening to German hard rock? How did they even under... I'm the only person that I know that would listen to that and enjoy it would be my sister. Because she, she used to take German. And so she would actually understand the song lyrics. But how did these kids listen to this German hard rock and understand the lyrics? Well, I guess they had Google. They had Internet. So, you know, they got it all translated. And, and, and indeed, a lot of things that they sang about. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is the devil hides his messages in music. I'm not, just, I'm not saying throw away all your secular music. Okay, I was never a big fan of that. But I'm saying that the devil does. He is strategic. And here's the thing about God. He is more strategic than the devil. Because all over his song lyrics in the Psalms, he prophesied the details of Christ's coming, about Christ's death. And, and, and you know, we, we go, well, why didn't God make it obvious for us? Why didn't David go, this is a psalm about the coming Son of Man who will be crucified on the cross, pierced for our transgressions. Why didn't he, like, announce it and then make it obvious? Why? Because there was an enemy that the, devil, that the, that the Lord was trying to dupe. I mean, if the devil really knew all the details of the crucifixion, I doubt the devil would have stopped it. But here, to, to the devil, three years of Jesus' public ministry of healing and casting out demons, he's had enough. He's like, ah, I gotta stop this. This is driving me nuts. And so they, he, he incited the Jews to yell, crucify. So Jesus was crucified. Man, where was I, man? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Jesus quoted from the Old Testament in the temptation. It shows us how Jesus read the Old Testament. Uh, In fact, if you look in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, when he meets these two disciples after he resurrects, the Bible tells us that beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How do you think Jesus read the Old Testament? 
Let me tell you right now. He believed the Old Testament was all God breathed. And you need to get, you need to get with that program. Uh, we just looked at the divine nature of the Old Testament. How about the New Testament? Can we apply 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God breathed. Can we apply that to the New Testament? All right, let's look at this. Um, 2 Peter 3, verse 15 and 16. Let's look at that. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Come on, pay attention. Stick with me. Don't just read the Bible for self-help. Or just read it just so that you can feel better about your bad day or something you're having. Our scripture does much more than that. As we read in 2 Timothy 3, all scriptures God breathed and it's useful for teaching, correction, rebuke. All right. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Look at this. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our brother Paul, just as our brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Remember, Peter was a fisherman. He didn't have no master's of divinity degree. So to him, some of the things that Paul wrote, they were hard to understand. In them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Oh, snap, you got to stop right there. Let's pick up what just happened here. Remember that Peter, the apostle, is one of the most central figures of the early church. Nobody went around uh, for Paul. People did this. Paul were like, people would be like, Paul's not an apostle. Paul wasn't even with Jesus all, all those three years. Paul wasn't there at the resurrection. Paul's not an apostle. And so people always criticize Paul's apostleship. But nobody ever did that for Peter. Why? Because Peter was there from day one. He knew Jesus. He talked with Jesus. Jesus used to spit on him when they talked together. I mean, they were, they were in it together. And so Peter, when the early church is established, in fact, it is his sermon that Gets 3,000 people saved on the day of Pentecost. Peter being this central figure, he writes his letter. And he says, and what he does here is Peter categorizes the letters of Paul as having the same authority as the Old Testament. Because remember, the 51 occurrences of the word scripture in the New Testament always refers to the Old Testament. So when Peter says people are twisting Paul's letters, just like they do the other scriptures, Peter is implying that he's categorizing Paul's letters in the same authority as the Old Testament. Now, if Peter meant not to do that, that's a pretty big mistake he made. All right. But what was going on at that time was Paul, you see, Peter was doing a lot of good things. But you know what? Paul was doing a lot more. Let's just face it, right? Paul planted all the churches all over the Gentile world. Peter helped to kind of start that uh, acceptance through him going to Cornelius' house. And, you know, the Cornelius' house, there were Gentiles. And then they believed and they received tongues. And it was evidence that they were receiving the gospel. Anyway, he's the one who first preached to the uh, Gentiles. But Paul's the one who actually took that and he ran with it. 
Peter's just chilling in his little office. I don't know if that's all he did. But, you know, he was doing a lot of that. He was sitting with the council and sitting with all these Jewish leaders. But Paul was out there getting beat, getting shipwrecked, getting stoned to death for the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but if a person like that who is putting his life on the line for the gospel starts writing letters, I'm going to pay attention. And so he writes all these letters. And at that time, after number of years, it became accepted that Paul's letters have authority. And that he would write a church. He would write to the, a letter to the church in Corinth and they would read it in Ephesus. They would read it in Philadelphia. They would read it in all the different churches. They would, man, get us a copy of that. But this is written to the church in Corinth. We don't care. These letters have authority. So they were all read. So Peter makes this acknowledgement. People are twisting Paul's letters like they do the other scriptures, that they do the Old Testament. So that's evidence that the early church, they believe that Paul's letters had authority. Now, if you take out a chunk of the New Testament and you, and you section off new, uh, Paul's letters, it's a good chunk of the New Testament. Paul wrote the most books in the New Testament. Uh, let's go to 1 Timothy 5.18. Come on now. 1 Timothy 5.18. Man, it feels like that AC is spewing out hot air. Pastor Mel, can we make sure that they get fixed this week? Yeah? Okay. Thank you. 1 Timothy 5.18. It says here, this is something most people don't see. All right? 1 Timothy 5.18. For the scripture says, this is the Apostle Paul writing, For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The first quotation there is from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. But the second does not occur anywhere in the Old Testament. Why? Because it is a quotation from the Gospel of Luke. That's why in some of your versions, it's in red letters. It was Luke recording through eyewitness accounts what Jesus had said. All right. And so Paul here, the Apostle Paul, who, the man of great authority, he quotes Jesus' words as recorded in Luke's gospel. And then he calls them scripture. Okay, that, that, you need to take that into account. Because, you know, you've been watching your little, uh, what, what's, that, what's that crazy book? Um, the, 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 the Da Vinci Code. Man, that demonic book and movie, demonic book and terrible movie. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, the devil's been at this for many years. Most of y'all just aren't well read on it. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but, you know, most of y'all aren't well read. Hollywood's been constantly trying to bombard us that there's missing gospel documents. The gospel of Thomas is the key to understanding true Christianity. But it's been lost because of a conspiracy in the Catholic Church. The gospel of Mary. Mary wrote a gospel. But because she was a woman, the church did not consider it as part of the canon. The gospel of John Newfeld. I don't know, man. People making up all kinds. Now, there were true documents that claimed to have these kinds of uh, authors. But you know what? Here's the thing. They all got thrown out. And they all got thrown out unanimously. Do you know why? First, the doctrine of those books do do not line up for the rest of Scripture. Second, there was was no well-known 
reputation among the churches that that document had authenticity. Now you got to understand those documents. It, it, it was meaningless back then, but today they're trying to play it off like there's a conspiracy, and we all need to wake up. The Bible is trust trustworthy. The the all of Scripture is God breathed. We are not missing a gospel. Now, if if the Apostle Paul here quoted from the Gospel of Thomas, and we forgot to put the Gospel of Thomas in here, then maybe I have some questions. But he's he's quoting from the Gospel of Luke. Now, Luke was a very smart man. He was a doctor. He did his research. And the cool thing about Luke is he didn't just take the eyewitnesses of men. He took the eyewitness accounts of women. <clears throat> That's why some of the, the, the gospel account is a little bit different. Because all the other gospels is mostly from a man's perspective. But how many of y'all know women's perspective? Sometimes it just has greater revelation, greater detail, greater color, greater emotion. <laughs> Like the, 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 the gospel by the men, it's like Jesus was resurrected. The rock was rolled away. <laughs> you know, the gospel of Luke's like, you know, there's like angels like on the, on the, on the, on the rock. And, and then the woman thought it was the gardener. And they were like, where, where, where have you laid my Lord? And, you know, like describes all these things that you don't get in the other gospels. Anyway, Paul quotes here from the Gospel of Luke and shows him. uh, And so he considers it scripture. He says, the scripture says, and he quotes two passages. All right. Now, uh, these two passages indicate that during the time of the writing of the New Testament, there was an understanding in the church that additions were being made to the very category, the very special category of scripture. So there was a basic understanding that there were additions being made. So, once we have established that the New Testament writings belong in the category of Scripture, then it is appropriate to apply 2 Timothy chapter 3.16 to all of the New Testament as well. And when the Bible says, all Scripture is God-breathed, I believe that God meant not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament that was being compiled at that time. God, in His prophetic foreknowledge meant 2 Timothy 3.16 to apply to all of the Bible. Amen? amen. Some of y'all are like, man, I ain't saying amen to that. That's crazy. That logic doesn't make no sense. All right. I, I, I don't know how to argue with you. Uh, but John 14.26, John 16.13, Jesus did indicate. You know, because you got to understand, the gospel of John itself was written... Many, 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 many years after Jesus' death and resurrection. <clears throat> and the Gospel of John, man, he got some nerve. You would think this old man, man, old man, your memory is failing you, sir. How are you going to write five paragraphs straight of what Jesus said? What, you have an audio recorder that we don't know about? How did you get all that? I mean, I get prophesied over. I can't remember all the things that somebody prophesied over me. How did John have like paragraphs of, so you know, as a kid, I was like, no, I can't receive the gospel of John. I can receive like one, two paragraphs. I can't do like five and eight paragraphs, especially by somebody who wrote it when he was much, much older. Right. And, but then Jesus did indicate to the disciples, he said that the Holy Spirit 
will bring into remembrance all the things that I said to you. So we have to understand, if this document is divine, we also can't eliminate the influence of the Holy Spirit. The influence the Holy Spirit had when the Gospel of John was being written. I'm telling you right now, that's the only logical explanation for me for how John remembered all that stuff. John only remembered it because the Holy Spirit was inspiring it word for word. Brothers and sisters, the New Testament is God-breathed. The Old Testament is God-breathed. All of Scripture is God-breathed. Now, it is one thing to affirm that the Bible itself claims divine authority. But it is another for you personally to be convinced that that's true. And this is where our experiences become very important. For you to be truly convinced that all of Scripture is God-breathed, your experiences have to come into play. Now, you might be like, well, my experiences may pollute my thinking. Man, that is just stupid logic. Think about the rest of your life. The rest of your life is managed by an experiential interpretation. Your mom tells you that the stove is hot. You study the stove. You Google stoves. You read about it. And you're like, I don't know, man. I just don't, I just don't believe in my mind that that stove is hot. One day, you're like stupid enough to touch that stove and you burn your hand and you have to deal with the burn marks for, the, for about three weeks because you, were, you weren't smart enough to Google that you have to flush water, your, your burn wounds underwater for 15 minutes. And if you get burned, after that, what happens? Your experience now interprets what your mom said. That stove is hot. You're like, that stove is hot. <laughs> so what, what I'm trying to argue is that People try to downplay experience, but I'm telling you, experience already plays a large part in the conclusions that we make. Here's here's the thing about scripture being God-breathed and experience being very important. You see, the ultimate conviction that the Bible is the word of God is only established and solidified when the Holy Spirit speaks in and through the words of the Bible into your heart and life. And some of you in here right now, you are not convinced that all scripture is God-breathed. But a big reason why you're not convinced is not because of your logic. It's not because of your rationale. It's not because you don't have enough information. It's because you don't have an experience of God personally. You don't have the Holy Spirit. You see, for a lot of people, they think that, you know, scripture... Scripture is inherently divine. Whether someone interprets it or not, it's inherently divine. So, so if you take the scripture, right in here is the potential for somebody to come and experience personal relationship with God. Uh, scripture is inherently divine, but for most people, they believe that it's just dead words on, written on a page. Even people that read it, a lot of people who read it and study it, they think it's just dead words written on a page. And this is where experience is very important to bring you to a conviction that all of Scripture is God-breathed. You see, without this quickening work of the Holy Spirit, for many people, the Bible is just dead words written on paper. But when the Holy Spirit enters in and begins to move in a person's heart, it takes dead words that look like they're written on just pages, 
and it's written now on your heart. You begin to live it out. You begin to walk it out. And you're able to experience that the words of God are spirit and life. The words of God are living and active. The word of God goes from being written on, our, on paper to written on our hearts. But without the, with the work of the spirit of God, a person will not receive or accept the truth that all of scripture is God breathed. So wherever you are right now in your journey about your, your views about scripture, what I'm trying to tell you right now is if you really want to be convicted that all of scripture is God breathed, you got to open up your heart to the Holy Spirit's ministry. You got to consider your experiences to help you interpret whether scripture is truly God breathed or not. You know, the, the words God breathed in the Greek is theonoustos. Okay, pneuma is where we get the word for spirit or the breath of God. All right, I talked about this, all right? Pneuma is, pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit, the study of spiritual things, right? Well, the word God breathed, it comes from theonoustos. Theo meaning God, noustos meaning breathe out. So even in this scripture that we just read, all scripture is God breathed. There is a picture that for you to truly get that conviction, you need the breath of God. You need the spirit of God to work in you or these words will be meaningless to you. And it's helpful for us to learn that the Bible uh, is historically accurate, that it's internally consistent, that it contains prophecies that were fulfilled hundreds of years ago, uh, hundreds of years later, uh, that it has uh, influenced the course of human history more than any other book, that it has changed countless multitudes of lives throughout history, that through it people find salvation, that it has a majestic beauty and profound depth unmatched by any other book, and that it claims hundreds of times that it has divine origin. All of these arguments are useful, and they help remove obstacles from a person being fully persuaded that scripture is God breathed. But when they are taken individually or all together, these things by itself cannot persuade a person that all of scripture is God breathed. You got to have an experience of the inner working of the Holy Spirit. This is why prayer is so key. You want your sibling to come to Christ? You want your backslidden friend to believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed? For them to stop living according to their speculations and stop, start living according to the Word of God? You want them to get there? Well, you better pray. Because all of the arguing in the world is not going to get them to the place where they believe all of Scripture is God-breathed. In fact, you don't even need that much argument. All you need is Holy Spirit. That's why it just amazes me because, you know, a lot of the um, guest speakers that came in through these the past couple weekends, they were like, wow, you have an amazing church, Christian. God has blessed you with amazing uh, young people. Like you, you are, what, how, you are so blessed. You were able to go and find these amazing people that love Christ and somehow you got them all together to have church. And I'm like, man, that's not, a, that's not even half the story. And they were like, well, how do you get... Them so How are they so fiery? How are they so in love with Christ? How are they so walking in holiness? Like you don't even talk about holiness that much, right? 
Well, how are they walking in purity and holiness? How are they striving to live rightly with the Lord? How, how did you get them there? And I said, man, I thought that through myself. Because you know what? Here, here's a confession. Here's a confession for y'all. When I took Pastor Eddie's biblical preaching class, one of the things that he teaches is that every preacher who is faithful should have a preaching schedule. Man, that cut me to the core. Because he said, if you have a preaching schedule, then you're able to give your people a balanced diet. You don't just preach about the things that you're good at preaching at, but you're able to preach with about all the different subjects that are, that are in the scriptures. You need to do that. You need to have a, 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 a preaching schedule. And that cut me to the core. Because for the last three years, if, if some of y'all have gone back to my podcast, there is no logical order <laughs> to the subjects that I choose. And so, I'm telling you, there is no, there is no human strategy. There is no human, I'm sorry, that's offending some of y'all. There is no human strategy that contributed to the balanced Christian lives that many of you are living. I just, I just, I didn't do it because I didn't do it. I just preached whatever I felt like it or whatever I felt like the Holy Spirit was leading me to preach. That's my confession. Right? So I'm not giving y'all the most balanced diet. Hallelujah. I'm just, I'm just like, yeah, yeah, go listen to other podcasts, read some books, and you'll be good. They'll fill in all the spots that I'm not filling in. Right? Here's the thing. So I'm like, man, what, what is it about New Philly? How is it that so, so many of y'all are so on fire for God living a life that's honoring the Word of God? How is that possible? And my only conclusion is a fire of the Holy Spirit. Man, sometimes I look at a young man, he's walking down... He's walking down for the altar call. And I look at him. And I'm like, this guy has not read the Bible. This guy doesn't know much about the Bible. This guy has doubts about the Bible. This guy has doubts about even the existence of God. He comes up and I pray for him. And Holy Spirit just, boom, just hits him with the power of God. He goes down on the power of God, starts shaking, starts crying. Starts, some of them start even yelling. They're like, ah, ah. And they're, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. When they get up. When they get up, a lot of times, many of them, they get up and they go, all scripture is God breathe. <laughs> I'm telling you, that issue, I don't even have to talk about it. It's set in order. Because it gets set in order through an encounter and through a relationship, a living relationship with God. It's not set in order just through arguments and through good teaching and preaching. It gets set, it gets set in order through relationship with the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you right now, Holy Spirit's the key. That's why your prayer is so important. And I'm just going to close with this. You cannot use science to try to argue that all of Scripture is God-breathed. You cannot use historical evidence to try to argue that all of Scripture is God-breathed. You know why? Because when you begin to uh, go to these other sources... What you are saying is these other sources has the ultimate authority. And that's just right there. You're, you're, you're all out of line. When, when, we, when we appeal to human logic or science to try to prove that the Bible is God's words, then, then when we assume that the thing that we are appealing to is a higher authority than the words of God itself. And right there is just out of line. The ultimate authority by which Scripture is shown to be God's words 
is scripture itself. Now, some of y'all might here might be saying, well, this is a circular argument. We believe God's word is God's word because it claims to be. We believe it claims to be because scripture is God's word. And we believe that it is God's word because it claims to be and so on and so forth. It's a circular argument. And this is what Wayne Grudem, a scholar, he, he wrote. He said, we must admit that we are doing what we are doing is a kind of circular argument. However, that does not make its use invalid. For all arguments for an absolute authority must ultimately appeal to that authority for proof. Otherwise, the authority would not be an absolute or highest authority. This problem is not unique to the Christian who is arguing for the authority of the Bible. Everyone, either implicitly or explicitly, uses some kind of circular argument when defending his or her ultimate authority for belief. So it goes like this. My reason is, the ultimate, is my ultimate authority because it seems reasonable to me to make it so. That's a, that's a circular argument. Same thing that we're doing. Uh, logical consistency is my ultimate authority because it is logical to make it so. Uh, the findings of human sensory experiences are the ultimate authority for discovering what is real or what is not because our human senses have never discovered anything else. Thus, human sense experience tells me that my principle is true. Okay. And what Wayne Grudem is trying to say is, if you want to argue for ultimate authority, everyone is using circular arguments. So if you're really smart and you just stay with me, what we're doing is not unique to Christianity. Then the question really becomes is, how then do we choose among the various claims of all the religions out there for absolute authority? And this is what Wayne Grudem says. He says, ultimately, the truthfulness of the Bible will commend itself as being far more persuasive than other religious books, such as the Book of Mormons or the Quran. Or uh, it is far more persuasive than any other religious books or, or more than any other intellectual constructions of the human mind, such as logic, human reason, sense experience, scientific methodology. It will be more persuasive because in the actual experience of life, all of these other candidates for ultimate authority are seen to be inconsistent. Or they have shortcomings that disqualify them. While the Bible will be seen to be fully in accord with all that we know about the world around us and about ourselves and about God. You see, uh, even here we have a problem because sin distorts our ability to even see the world around us, ourselves and God. And this is where it's important that we have the help of the Holy Spirit. And we have the blood of Christ wiped across our hearts. That we are in the blood of Christ. Because Holy Spirit, the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit's ministry, it helps us to overcome the effects of sin distorting our perception of reality. The Holy Spirit helps us to overcome this weakness so that we can be persuaded fully that all of Scripture is indeed God-breathed. 
Brothers and sisters, I'm just going to end with this. All of scripture, Old Testament and new, is God breathed. And it is useful for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Father, we just today are just so amazed that you have given us the scriptures. That through all kinds of external circumstances, the scriptures could have been polluted, contaminated, and yet by your spirit, you have written down all that you meant to say, all that you had wanted to say. Not all that you had to say. There's a lot of things you still say, Lord. But all that we need for us to check even prophetic words we receive today. We know that even the prophecies received today, if they are in conflict with your written word, we have a problem with that. Because your word is God-breathed. And your word gives life. And your words equip us for every good work. We honor your word. We bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.